1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
0: Well, sometimes the pressure just gets to you, but you don't want too much pressure in your rifle cartridges. Hello everyone, Ron Spomer back with another podcast, and this one is going to answer some questions about pressures in your rifle. We have a patron who is wondering about this. Billy asks us, let's see, Ron, I have watched your videos, read your articles, and listened to you for a long time now. I've learned a lot. In your recent episode, you've mentioned pressure related to cartridges. I'm interested to know how to use this information as a hand loader. In other words, what value does knowing pressure help us as shooters, hunters, and hobbyists, and handloaders? I can see if I were approaching max charge, but I see different max pressures depending on the bullet and the powder selection. Can you expand on this and help me understand how to use this information? Or should I not spend much time on it? Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. Thanks, Billy. Hey, thank you, Billy. That is a good question. Um, Pressures are something that are a constant with any cartridge. Regardless what the cartridge is, SAMI, the uh, Sporting and Arms Manufacturers Institute, sets standards for it so that all the manufacturers of ammunition and rifles can build their products to withstand the pressures generated by that burning powder, the gas pressure. You can't have too much or you will blow up the rifle and or barrel. So the hand-loading manuals have to build their loads up watching for these pressures and they can have equipment that actually measures the pressure. And there's several ways to do it. One's the old copper crusher method. I won't get into details on it. Now there is a piezoelectric sensor and then it depends on whether that's positioned in the middle of the cartridge chamber or forward at the throat. And so there's all sorts of different numbers, but the professionals uh, who are building this stuff understand it much better than we hand loaders. So we have to be cautious. If you build too much pressure in a particular load, you could damage your rifle and or yourself. So yes, pressures are important. So what the hand loading manuals do when they are testing, they measure the pressures as they're building up their loads. So when they give you the recipes in those hand loading manuals, they will start low with something they usually call a starting load, and it will have a specific case, a specific primer, the powder, and the quantity of powder, and the bullet. And changing any one of those can change the pressures, sometimes just a little bit, but sometimes fairly radically. So you really need to be careful. You've got to follow the recipes. And the different powders are probably contributing to this more than anything else. Although the primers are surprisingly um they they change it a lot more than most of us would guess because there are hotter primers or milder primers, so they're automatically increasing pressures. So just watch all of that stuff. Work from the starting loads on toward the top. The, the problem that most hand loaders get into is that they try to push the envelope. Hey, I think I can go a little faster than that. And then we have to depend on reading pressure signs by looking at the cases and feeling what's happening in our rifles. And these are somewhat difficult for most of us to understand. Um, one of the things is, a sticky bolt everybody talks about this what does that mean well you have a bolt action rifle you lift the bolt and that of course pops the cartridge out of the chamber the initial break uh, to ex- begin extracting it and if it lifts up really hard and it's pretty hard to pull back that suggests that the pressures have been so great when you made that shot that the case is jammed against the walls of the chamber you know This is something that happens with every shot. The brass blows out, gets hot, and it flares out from that pressure, hits the sidewalls, grips them to keep from putting too much back pressure against your bolt face, and then cools down just in a microsecond to loosen up again so that you can't extract it i mean that's the only way these autoloaders, fully automatic rifles especially can function if you can imagine that automatic sound of rounds going off just that quickly the whole system works they expand they lock in they cool down they come out and the next one goes at it wow <laughs> a lot going on there and pressure is related to all of this stuff so That's one thing you can look for. The other thing is you you look on the cartridge itself when it comes out. First thing is you look at the back on the primer. There's black ash and marks around it. That suggests that some of the gases and the carbon fouling and heat have gotten out. That could be just a loose primer pocket from an old case that's probably getting too old to use again. Could be too much pressure that somehow forced its way out. The other thing is the primer itself. Uh, You will notice when you put a primer in a cartridge or even buy a factory cartridge, there's usually a rounded edge where the primer meets the actual pocket of the head of the cartridge. And if that all gets flattened out so it looks almost uniformly one material across that surface, that's a flattened primer suggesting so much pressure that it melted, see how we say, and made that metal flow to fill in all the potential gaps, too much pressure. Uh, Also a ring, uh, sort of like a crater around the firing pin mark in the primer. Think of a meteorite, bam, a meteor hits the ground and you get the outflow of materials and there's a rim around it. Something like that can be happening with too much pressure. And there are always degrees of that. You know, one man might look at it and one woman might look at it and say, that doesn't look like much of a ring to me. And the other one would say, oh my gosh, that's too much pressure. You kind of That's why it's not easy to just lock this stuff down. You have to learn how to interpret all of this stuff and take them all together and balance all of that against the load that you are building. Um, are you at the near or at the top of the max pressure load for that particular recipe you pulled out of that manual? If you are, then you those pressure signs are worth heating. If you start to get those with a starting load with three, four grains less powder than the max, then it suggests that there's probably not pressure something else is causing that it's more of an art than a science but you have to pay attention to it and learn as you go so it's always great to start low and work your way up let me think if i can come up with another pressure sign cratering oh you know how on some bolts i think the uh remington model 700 with that plunger in the back that pushes the case out you've got a little hook on all these bolts that grab the uh the rim or the groove, the extractor groove on a cartridge to pull it out of the the chamber. Gotta have that groove right there, right? So that's pulling it out, but when it comes out, something has to push it off the face of the bolt. And what some rifles do, quite a few actually, is they have a little spring-loaded plunger, like a little needle, off to the side of the face of the bolt that pushes against the base of the cartridge and flings it off of the bolt face. And if you see a mark, a little circle, that is that particular plunger post getting melted against the case, that again suggests too much pressure. So that's something to look for that's suggesting too much pressure. And sometimes you can even get the stamp that says 30 out six on the head of the case or whatever it is. If that starts to get sort of melded out and smoothed out, that suggests there's heat and pressure that are excessive. I mean, you're really getting excessive if something like that starts to happen. So all of those things are suggesting excessive pressure. Finally, you get to the measurement stage where you get your micrometer and or your caliper and you start measuring the expansion of the case itself, especially down near the head where the webbing is. Every one of these cartridges in a fire has a solid piece of brass at the base, the foundation through which there is a hole. That's the primer pocket hole that gets the flash of the primer to go into the powder. That is a Obviously, a strong area because it's solid brass. It's not just that thin wall. If that expands, that suggests you're getting a lot of heat and pressure too. So check the dimensions in the hand-loading manuals. They will give you some ideas of what your maximum minimum measurements on that stuff should be. And or with that head diameter stuff, just measure it uh, on an unfired brand new case or cartridge. Against what comes out of your rifle. And if you're seeing a significant increase in those dimensions, that is suggesting too much pressure. Whew. Boy, this was a high pressure answer. <laughs> I hope I came up with all the stuff we need to know here. But you are wise to be considering this stuff. The simple answer, of course, is just follow the recipes and the handloads. You are going to have some subtle differences rifle to rifle if you have a tighter barrel that will increase your pressures if you have a tighter chamber that can increase your pressures and if you use a different bullet that's a little stickier uh, a little bit oversized perhaps you could raise your pressures so even though your recipe might be a half a grain or one grain of powder less than the maximum for the recipe you're using out of a hand-loading manual you might still be getting more pressure than they did with their particular chamber and barrel. So yeah, you've got to balance all of that stuff and be careful. Good question, however, and I am glad you-
1: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer special all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: Asked it. All right, let's see what the team came up with. Folks writing in asking us all sorts of things. Somebody from Nevada, Randall. Ron, with all the bandages I have on your fingers, I thought it was why I was watching Les Nessman on WKRP in Cincinnati. Well, this is going to go over the heads of a lot of people here, Randall. <laughs> First of all, the bandages on my fingers. I'm working out here on our ranch with fencing and uh, working with... Uh, Oh, gosh, just all kinds of tools and ranch stuff, and my fingers get all beat up. Plus, they're really susceptible to the cold, and they start to crack and whatever, and it hurts like heck, so I put bandages on, and then I'm doing a video, and I forget that I've got bandages on my finger, and I look like an accident, and the reference to Les Nessman on WKRP in Cincinnati is a pop uh TV show a comedy show back I believe in the 70s that was real popular and there was uh, a character Les Nesman was I think a broadcaster on this radio station who was always getting in trouble or something maybe he always had injuries on his fingers I'm not really sure Randall <laughs> but uh, thanks for the little touch of humor there I will try to take better care of my fingers or camouflage my bandages don't have anything on today that's pretty good all right Gary from British Columbia Ron, I have a Remington Model 788. It shoots a 6 millimeter cartridge, and I'm having a heck of a problem finding ammo for it. Do you know of anything else that it will shoot? <laughs> I'm told the 6 millimeter Creedmoor, the 6 millimeter ARC, and the 243 won't fly, so I'm holding this rifle as a wall hanger for now. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, this brings up an important thing. A lot of folks are confused about cartridges and interchangeability. They see the same numbers like a 30 this and a 30 that and the different sevens. These are all the diameters of the bore and or bullet. Those are the same, but the case is wildly different. I mean, you take a 3030 case versus a 30 six case versus a 3378 Weatherby case, and the dimensions in length and width and shoulder angles are so vastly different that there's no possible way they could chamber in one another's rifles and shoot. Um, now there are some that are close enough that they will chamber and fire. uh, But boy, the dimensions of those chambers are so different that the case ends up splitting or stretching too far, kicking gases back in your face and all sorts of bad things, which is why we always say only chamber and fire a cartridge on which the head stamp matches with the barrel, what's written on the barrel or inscribed or roll stamped into the barrel. If your barrel says, 308 Winchester don't try shooting A3030 in it <laughs> and especially don't try A308 in a 30 out 6 because that is pretty much the same basic case only the 308 is shorter and there's pretty fair chance that it would fit into the 30 out 6 chamber and go off with a lot of excess space in there and it should be all right but there's potential for trouble So don't expect to shoot any other cartridge that has 6mm on part of its name, like the 6mm Creedmoor, in the 6mm Remington. They just have two different dimensions that are not going to work out. However, you still need some ammunition for your rifle, and you can find 6mm cartridges. Remington, I think, is the only one still manufacturing it If they're even doing that now because of the backlog on cartridges, they probably haven't loaded any for quite a while. They're trying to catch up on the more popular ones. But it was in their line up until this COVID mess hit. But another place to get them um, are from sort of semi-custom loaders and smaller firms that will specialize in loading ammunition. That is pretty uncommon. Uh, So you need to do a, a search for these smaller brands that are loading factory ammunition um, Black Hills Ammunition is one. Um, I'm not remembering all the different custom names, but there are plenty of them out there. Um, Nosler itself will load quite a few oddball cartridges like that. So you might want to check out Nozzler. It might be in their custom line. Um, Quantity does a pretty good job of addressing it. They might have a six millimeter yet. I remember they had one. And then you can always go to a custom hand loader. Plenty of places that will load just for you for your particular rifle they'll even have you if you want to you could send your rifle in and have them custom tailor the loads to fit your chamber perfectly etc cetera, etc cetera. but there are a lot of options maybe even a local hand loader a friend of yours who hand loads could do it because the six millimeter remington is based off of the seven millimeter mauser and or the 257 roberts so a hand loader who knows his stuff can get the dies and make the transitions by reshaping the case to six millimeter from either one of those so there are options out there just need to do a little bit of research i hope you find it because that 788 in six millimeter was my go-to rifle when I was in my late teens I mean that's kind of what I rolled into after I got over my initial 30-30 Winchester that was my first rifle took my first deer with it a couple of deer with it actually then started to want to hunt some foxes for the valuable furs and pelts back in the day and that 30-30 was not optimal but the six millimeter looked pretty darn good So I picked it up in a 788 Remington, same one you have. And I took a lot of game with that over the years. It is a great cartridge. And I still have a rifle chamber for the six millimeter. I got a soft spot for that baby. It's actually better than the 243. It will throw the same bullets about 150 feet per second faster than the 243 Winchester. So it's a great little cartridge. All right. Now we're going to right. We're going to stay in Canada right next door to British Columbia hop over the mountains into Alberta, where Kirk is asking this question. I really enjoy your segments. They're interesting and entertaining. Just a point regarding one of your responses to a question regarding left-handed shooters using right-handed rifles. The crossover to work the action is not the only problem with this, as most left-handed shooters will also have left-eye dominance. This is very hard to counter and it will cause the shooter to lean over the rifle to line up the scope with his or her left eye. This can be done with a rimfire, but once you get into rifles with any significant recoil, it can cause serious issues and possible injury. I had a friend with this problem when I was a youngster and he did okay until we started hunting big game with center fires. Yeah, eye dominance, you know, really is sort of the foundation of whether you should shoot left-handed or right-handed. I think most of us shoot right-handed because our dads, moms, grandmas, grandfathers, whoever started us just assumed you're going to shoot from the right side. Um, And even if you are a lefty, they would do that. But it's really the eye dominance that matters more, I think, especially if you're shooting a shotgun. You should be overcoming this with a rifle because you've got a sight. Uh, If you've got a strong left eye dominance and you're holding the rifle on the right side, your eye, of course, is going to see the rear sight and then look over that rear sight well beyond where the front side of the barrel is. So you got to either shift over to get those lined up like this gentleman's friend was doing, or you have to close your left eye and let the right eye see it. Now, some of us can make this happen automatically with our eyes. It's just that you're looking at those sights and now you just need to do force your right eye to see that sight rather than your left. But boy for a lot of folks that left eye is so dominant that it automatically grabs it and then they do have problems. So it would be better if they learn to shoot left-handed. The downside to that is then you're limited in your rifle selection because so many manufacturers do not make left-handed bold action rifles. So then you consider Single shots, lever actions, pump actions, different things that might work out for you. Uh, there's just always more challenges for the south pause, unfortunately. But yeah, that's an important consideration. So, uh, left eye, right eye dominance, how do you figure out which is which? The easiest way is to put your finger out in front of you as a pointer and point at something, like I always say a light switch because there's one right over there on the wall and keep both eyes open and just put your finger right under that light switch. And then close one of your eyes, doesn't matter which one, I'm gonna close my right eye. And when I do that, suddenly that light switch has jumped a good foot off to the left. That means that my right eye had automatically lined up my finger with that light switch when I kept both eyes open. So now I'll do the same thing Put my finger up there. It's right under the light switch. Now I close my left eye and it is still right under the light switch. Right eye dominant. That's how you check for yourself. Hope that made sense for you guys. Especially with a new shooter, you should do this because someone who has never worked with firearms can just as easily start on the left side as the right. It's all new. Muscle memory hasn't been established yet. So it'll be easy. All right. That was a good one, Kurt. That'll, I think, help a lot of folks. And now we're going to go clear down to Tennessee, where Brandon asked us something uh, about a podcast. I was listening to a podcast, the Big Game Hunting Podcast, episode 177. Yeah, that's by our, our good friend, John. He does a great job over there. Um, and he had on Dr. Kevin Robertson. This is a um, veterinarian and a professional hunter in Africa. Great big guy. I think he stands about... Six foot, 24 inches tall or something. <laughs> he's, he, he's really huge and he knows his stuff. At any rate, uh, Brandon continues. As a PH, uh, Dr. Robinson was very critical of several dangerous game cartridges. One of them was the three seventy five h H&H. His big complaint was the bullets not performing. He said that they were tumbling due to overstabilization at close range. He said it was like spinning a top. When it is first spun, it takes a few seconds to settle in. What are your thoughts? In archery, overstabilization is never a problem, but I understand it's different with bullets. I will never have the depth of experience that he has, but it seems that several variables could account for tumbling or underperforming bullets. I wonder if any slow motion footage would show wobbling overstabilized bullets. It seems that if this were the issue, it would be easy to see on paper targets as some of the bullets would not produce perfect circles. Do you have any thoughts? Who, boy, Brandon, do I have any thoughts? Yeah, they're all jumbled thoughts at this point. (laughs) I just have never bought into this overstabilized bullet. I mean, if it's stable, it's stable. You know, and the slower a top spins, the less stable it is. Faster it spins, the more stable it is. I have never spun a top so quickly that it would fall over. But if it's going slowly, it surely will. So yeah, it takes a split second, I suppose, for the initial perfection to start spinning, um, unless everything is perfectly balanced. But I don't see where that would change the, the effect of the bullet and, and the tumbling. To me, tumbling happens when your bullet strikes the target and then variable pressures pushed against the nose of the sidewalls of that bullet would change how it is progressing forward. And I I say this because traditionally straight line penetration bullets are flat nosed. And some of them even have cavitations on the nose that somehow helps with straight line penetration to prevent angling off to the sides or tumbling. Whereas if you have a sharp curve uh, on the nose of your bullet, the ogive, and the bullet hits a harder surface on one side than the other, like a bone, it's going to be deflected And then it's no longer going in a straight line, but it's beginning to tumble. So that would seem the better answer to me than some sort of possible overstabilization. I just don't see overstabilized. Now you will see that an understabilized bullet does hit your targets in an oblong shape. And I've proven that by doing it with several different rifles over the years. They're just not spinning fast enough. So they have a bit of a wobble and then the nose is going around and around they've got a yaw thing going on and a nodding and all sorts of things so they don't shoot all that accurately and they do put those oblong holes in the target i'm not sure i mean i i respect dr roberts and he knows his stuff but there's plenty of us who know our stuff, who don't know everything, and we sometimes get a few things wrong. Lord knows I'm one of them, but I'm going to have to uh, disagree with him right here. I don't think it's it's an overstabilization issue, um, especially with the 375 H&H. It's been established for so long. I, I would lean more toward the, maybe it's just not big and powerful enough of the right bullet in the right place. Good Lord, everybody knows that those work. I mean, Bell would not have been taking elephants with seven millimeter from a 757 Roberts. He was actually using a 275 Rigby, which is just a British name for the 757 with a 173 grain military bullet. Um, and he was drilling elephants in the brain and killing them just fine. So I don't know. Yeah, you guys can argue that one with me, but that's my take on it, Brandon all right we're going to canada again a lot of folks from canada today this is good good to hear from you guys this is ben hi ron i was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the 32 special i told my uncle that i wanted to get into hunting so he is passing one down to me oh that's neat man you're gonna have a lever action 32 winchester special that is special (laughs) in many ways and especially when it comes from a family member handed down Beautiful. So, um, I can find next to nothing about the cartridge on the internet or on YouTube. Will I be able to find ammunition and how big of a game do you think it was suitable for at hundred yards or less where I'll be hunting? Thank you for your time. I love watching all your content. Well, thank you, Ben. No, you've got a classic on your hands here. If I remember right with the 32 Winchester special came out around 1902. So the thirty thirty was out first 19, in actually in ninety five. They always say it was ninety four when they released the model ninety four lever action rifle, but they didn't actually get the cartridge out until the next year. Um, and then I think all they did was took that cartridge and necked it up to thirty two, changed the uh, slope of the shoulder small degree, um, but basically it's the thirty thirty necked up to thirty two. And at the time, with the powders they were using, the 32 did have about a 20% or so power advantage over the 3030. And as I remember, the 32 Special pretty much shooting a 170 grain bullet. They may have had some 200 grains, but somewhere in that category. So you're starting with the smaller bullet in the 32 is about the same weight as the heaviest in the 3030. Then they're both launching at around mm, 2200, 2300 feet per second from a 24 inch barrel. But then over the years, most of the lever-action shooters went with 20-inch barrels for the woodland's convenience. You're going to be hunting in the woods at relatively short distances, 24-inch barrels nice out in the open Western country. But in the woods, you're getting your shots inside of 150 yards. Anyway, might as well have a lighter barrel. So the velocities are going to be a little bit lower than that. Regardless, the upshot today is that with new powders and all, the... Thirty thirty comes within probably ten percent of the performance of the thirty two. Uh, there, gosh, I just don't think it's worth worrying about the difference and saying I'm going to get a thirty two special because it's so much better than the thirty thirty. No, but if you have one, well, why not use it? I mean, gosh, you're going to be able to do everything a thirty thirty can do with maybe a little bit more advantage in your energy at certain ranges. I think. Because of the higher BC of 170 grain bullet from a 3030, you're going to have more energy after 100 yards than you would with the 32. But we're again talking about small differences that the animal's never going to notice. Consider this to be your cooler version of a 3030 Winchester. You have a 32 Winchester special, and that makes you special. <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and have fun with it. I think most still load ammo for it, although I don't think anyone chambers it anymore. Perhaps a few lever-action manufacturers do chamber it. I haven't seen any in recent years, but you already have one, so you're not worried about that. You just need ammunition. Hornady loads it, Winchester loads it. I think even Remington loads it yet. Federal probably loads it, so most of them are going to have ammunition for it. Go ahead and find yourself some and have a great time with that rifle. Pretty cool to own a 32 Special. Oh, gosh, here's somebody from Missouri who has a problem. Oh, my gosh, Owen. What's your problem? Where the heck do you get primers? I can't find any. (laughs) Welcome to our world, buddy. (laughs) Nobody can find any primers. Here's what's going on with primers. Ammunition manufacturers cannot keep up with demand. Do you think they're going to sell their primers to you so you can load your own ammunition and not be inspired to buy their ammunition? Not likely. So what they're doing is they're using all the primers they need to load all the ammunition for which they have a demand to satisfy all of us who are saying, why can't I find ammunition for my rifle? (laughs) Until the primer manufacturers really crank up the numbers of primers that they're making, this is going to remain a problem for some time. Most of us are finding that if we consistently check our sporting goods dealers and let the guy behind the counter know we need some primers we can find a few you know they might put you on a list Um, they might say you're only allowed so many boxes when they do come in so that everyone gets a few Um, but it's a problem and I think we can work our way through it so here's some good news Fiocchi the Italian manufacturer of ammunition has had a plant in the states down in missouri for gosh decades now at least 30 years and they are expanding including they're building a new plant to make primers so i am excited to hear this we may soon be finding an increased supply of primers from Fioki. so stay tuned for that all right let's see nebraska scott now this is nice scott Nebraska, I automatically think of Scott's Bluff, Nebraska. Great little town in a great part of Nebraska. Quite scenic out there. At any rate, Scott probably doesn't live on Scott's Bluff, but he is from Nebraska. Hello, Ron. I don't have a question. Well, that was easy. (laughs) Oh, but I just wanted to let you know that I appreciate what you do. Oh, that's nice. Thank you for that, Scott. A few years ago, I had a very large brain tumor removed that resulted in about a 90% loss of vision. Oh man, sorry to hear that, Scott. Being a veteran, I don't give up easily and I fought hard to recover. Slowly, most of my vision has returned over the years. Well, that's great, but it's still not perfect. My father raised me on Nebraska hunting and I was able to pass this gift on to my kids who are now themselves adults. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to hunt in about four years since that brain surgery, but I'm excited to give it another shot this fall. Because of your videos and vast knowledge in shooting, you have relit the fire inside me and I can't wait to bag another big Nebraska mule deer. I even ordered a new Browning X-Bolt rifle in 6.5 PRC to try instead of my trusty 7mm Remington Magnum that I've hunted with since I was stationed in Idaho. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you. Please keep doing what you do. Oh gosh, Scott. I want to thank you for that. Thank you. That was really uplifting. Uh, You know, sometimes I think I'm just babbling on about superficial, nothing that really doesn't matter to folks. But when I get a letter like this and realize that I'm actually having uh, a useful impact in on folks, in, inspiring them to do things that bring joy to their life and fulfillment or whatever, I don't want to overplay it, but golly, when Someone like you thanks me for this and you have positive results from listening to my drivel. That just really makes my day. So Scott, I hope you see and bag the biggest mule deer buck that ever trotted across the grasslands of Nebraska. Best of luck to you, my friend. And thanks to everyone who rode in, Owen and Ben and Brandon and Kirk and Gary and Randall and You guys really make this all possible. So keep those uh, letters coming in and the answers and the corrections and all the rest of it. We're all in this together. And the whole idea is to become better and more effective shooters and hunters, doing things right, defending our Second Amendment rights. It's all important. So hang in there and be ready for the next podcast. We'll see you next time Hunt Honest and Shoot Straight.